Hello, welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I have a very exciting guest today, Lafayette Lee from Twitter, and his Substack is ruins.substack.com, and it's the a reference to the ruins of Karatman, which I just learned about from this. Um, I will say that you are my favorite political writer currently writing. The way that you Organized prose is so clean and crisp and clear. And you somehow, something that many people don't do that you do is you find a way to inject emotion in there while also writing with quite a bit of reason and quite a bit of rationality. So it's really, really exciting for me to have you on here. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, you know, honored to be here. So, and I thank you very much for that very gracious introduction. Okay, cool. So your beat, I don't know if you would even call it this, you you write kind of about mainstream politics very smartly. And you come from the right, you are a military veteran. And, but you don't, you're not, at, I would say you're very far from the BAP type world. You're You're not literary beyond just amazingly clear writing talent. Um, and you're an uh, an analyst, you kind of analyze the the issues of the day, and also what I really love is provide an emotional backbone, uh, a historical American backbone, and then also advice on what to actually do. Right. So the first thing I want to ask you about is the Kanye, Milo, Fuentes, Tim Pool situation that just blew up yesterday on Tim Pool's podcast with Kanye walking off the set. Um, and the, yeah, of course there's many rumblings in our scene of what's going on is Kanye being manipulated by Milo against Trump. Um, what's actually happening here. So I'd love your take on, on this political machination. Well, you know, I, you know, I confess, I don't really listen that much to Kanye. I'm only vaguely familiar with Milo from years ago when I was in the army and then Nick Fuentes, I don't have a lot of experience with him. I know probably enough about all three of these individuals um, to maybe give uh, some perspective. I think I, but I don't think that that actually matters. I think in this case, what I think we have to understand is that the media narrative that is being, you know, driven around this, I, I feel like is incredibly astroturfed. And I know that there's like a lot of talk about, you know, if somebody is an informant or things like that, you know, I don't even think that actually matters either. I think I think the whole the problem with what is happening here is, you know, I think that this is this is not capturing a new moment. This is an this is trying to recapture an old moment and it will probably do nothing but but add fuel to a fire that I think we'd be wise to avoid. And I think that I think that definitely Trump and DeSantis right now, there is, you know, there is definitely a conflict going on between those two camps. A lot of that, I think, is being provoked by our adversaries in this. And I think that this whole, you know, media sensation around this, you know, these individuals meeting with Trump and then later, you know, trying to recapture the limelight a little bit. I just I think that this will do nothing but cause problems for us. So I you know, if you noticed, I don't even talk about this incident. Um, and that is because I I don't trust that this incident is authentic. I don't think it's going to help any of the of the camps that I I think need to be advanced here. And so that's where I kind of stand on the whole thing. I think that I think we would be very 
wise to approach this whole thing with kit gloves. You mentioned this is something that's recurring that has occurred before. What are you referencing there? Um, you know, how I look at this is that we have we have these repeated setups and then take the bait. And then we have the narrative that, that comes about from this. And it's just this vicious cycle. Um, the, you know, we, we, we clearly have a president, a former president and his faction of the America first faction that is being attacked on both sides of this equation. So we have, you know, attacks coming from the left and we have attacks coming from the establishment, quote unquote, right. 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 And so this, you know, this has been, you know, this has always been what has tried to suck up the oxygen that somebody like Trump commands so well. And it's the same setup every single time. It is, you know, the it, to me, it seems that the pieces are already pre-written before these things ever even happen. And I mean, you could go down the list. I mean, we have years worth of this sort of thing happening. And I just, I just, I know that some people on the right have loyalties to all the individuals involved here. I just... You know, I, I feel like this is a this is like a last gasp of 2016, which was a great moment. I'm not disparaging that, but like we're not we don't need to try to recycle that energy. We need to be moving into a new, you know, new ground. Things have changed considerably. The energy is still there. It's just, you know, this whole thing feels like a setup to me. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think. If I had to guess what's going on, I mean, it's really tough. I think for sure there's internal Republican pressure. Um, and I think McConnell just said something today that proves this. They want Trump out. So they're trying to stage various ways to slam the door on Trump. And this does strike me as some part of that. So there's uh, there's some they, they want to do whatever they can to slam the door on Trump. And this is uh, part of that. But. So you're saying stay away, like don't even like don't even get into it. Just don't even think about it. Yeah, I I don't, and you know, uh, and and to be honest with you, like I I I find that we on the right, especially, we feel like we have to be drawn into every one of these spectacles yeah. Yeah. and have a comment on it. Right. There will be people that will have, you know, something to say that might be valuable here. I'm not saying there aren't, and there are people that have, like I said, have loyalties to various individuals in here. Uh, I you know the only loyalty I really feel at all would be to Trump, right? Right. In this, in this situation. And I feel like uh, there is nothing valuable that I can add. There's nothing I need to even comment on. I think most of us don't need to, this right. doesn't have anything to do with most of us. Uh, this feels like a spectacle and I don't trust that it's authentic. So I think that's even more reason just to say, you know, avoid, stay away. There's no need, like we have no ownership over this situation well and um, the, and the I, yeah sorry no go ahead no no you're fine yeah it's just i don't feel like we have any real ownership over this and therefore you know stop taking the bait and that's yeah. that's how i feel i could not agree more i think that's such good advice that we don't need to weigh into any of these things in fact most of them we shouldn't and the only thing to gain here is divisiveness. The only thing that could possibly be gained by having an opinion on this is breaking apart the right, as far as I can see. I don't see what else could possibly be gained from speculating and having a strong sense either way. 
Exactly. I think something else to consider here is that this, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier today, but we have this, we have this thing where we're drawn into playing this denunciation theater game. We already know who's going to make comments on this, the kinds of aspersions they're going to cast. If no matter how unjust it might be, let's say that you feel like Trump is being set up, right? Um, I don't think it's wise to enter into an arena where you already know the conclusion. It will turn into denunciation theater. And if you're not going to be a denouncer, you're going to have to be denounced. And I just don't see any wisdom in walking into an ambush like that, any of us, right? And when you enter into that fray, you know, you have, now you're taking ownership over some of it. And and for for those that have ownership, sure, go ahead, I guess. For me, I have no ownership over this. And so I will not, I refuse to take on ownership in, in something like this, that I know exactly how it will end. There's nothing to be gained here is how I see it. And, and really when it comes down to politics, I mean, this is all tactics and strategy. Um, and I think those of us on the populist right or on the right in general, you know, we have to think a little bit more tactically and strategically. It's not cowardly to know when to pick your battles. Um, you know, for many people, it, you know, I'm not I'm not urging vacillation in any way. Like I said, if you feel strongly about something involved here, go for it. Uh, but but you don't speak for me. And and that's that's really my my final say on that whole thing. Very smart. Very smart approach. Can I ask, did you support Trump in 2016? You know, I didn't even uh, I didn't even vote. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the army. <laughs> I know. Isn't that sad? I you know, I you know, but I'll be honest, I, I like Trump, but. I, I was really kind of jaded on politics. I was in the army at the time. I wasn't even in the United States um, during the elections. And so for me, it was, I'd kind of lost a lot of faith in the Republican party. Um, I absolutely had no allegiance to the Democratic party. Uh, but I felt like at the time that, you know, I hadn't really, most of my family supported Trump. And so I probably, I had, I had good feelings towards Trump. I just, I didn't think he had a shot. And so for me, it was just, um, I was kind of outside the political, you know, the political zeitgeist, to be honest with you, um, which is makes it kind of funny as I'm kind of like, uh, I enter into this, this world and I see so much, you know, so much of this comes from 2016 in this ferment, which I wasn't even in the country at the time. And so you know, there's a lot of energy there that I find to be fascinating, but I, I wasn't a part of a lot of that. Right. That You got it later. Interesting. Um, OK, well, then let's talk about Lafayette Lee a little bit. Um, you are an Anon, obviously. You have almost 50,000 Twitter followers. Um, what is Lafayette Lee, first and foremost, your brand and also your Substack Ruins of Karatman. I'd love to hear you explain both of those things. Sure. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, I'm a husband and father. That's what I'm most proud of. It's what I, I've uh, built my life around those two things. And so everything else outside of that to me is less significant. Um, you know, I, I, you know, in like a, a worldly sense, I, you know, I've, I've led a very interesting career, um, I was in the military, as you mentioned, I've traveled all over the world. I speak several languages, you know, all those things. Uh, but it's just, you know, that's fun. It's interesting. Uh, but that's not what really motivates me in life. It's not what I build my life around or those things. Um, but, you know, I, I live in a small little community, kind of in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, it's an area where I have, a, I have some deeper family history that I'm very intrigued by. And, and, uh, I, I imbue that <laughs> to my children. Um, but you know, as far as, you know, Lafayette Lee, it wasn't anything I put in a considerable amount of thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. All the best brands, <laughs> what you learn is all the best brands were not too much thought. <laughs> That's the way in the world of branding, it's always true. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of like an alliteration. Uh, Lafayette's a, a hero of my, you know, me and my 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 kids. We read a lot about him in that era. Uh, the Lee, I mean, you know, I I don't hide this, but um, you know, I'm descended from the original Lee family. You know that um, the first family of Virginia and all that. There's a lot of history uh. in Virginia from the Lee family. So I am actually a direct descendant of that line. Something wow. that I'm, so you know, Robert E. Lee is a you know cousin, but um, yeah, so that was something that, you know, I just kind of combined those two things. And then as far as the ruins of Karotamon, you know, I, in my writing, I always try to keep an eye on the past. Uh, I'm, I feel like as we're swimming in this, you know, really all, you know, swimming in a stream propaganda and it's, you know, very strong currents and terrible undertoes. And I feel like the past, even though the past can be murky and difficult to discern, I feel like sometimes it's the only way to stake a position, you know, an immovable position and, and be able to kind of orient yourself. Uh, I take that very seriously. Um, and then, you know, the ruins of Crotomon, it's an old plantation. I have a little bit of family history in that. And so I, I tend to try to write from a perspective of always keeping one eye on the past as I try to make sense of the present. Um, I, you know, I do take it very seriously that I, you know, I feel like my own life trajectory reflects a lot of Americans out there. You know, I come from this first family of Virginia and some of the first people to set foot in the Virginia colony as Europeans and whatnot. A lot of family history in America. Um, but, you know, I've seen, you know, even in my own personal life, kind of this, not a fall from grace, but just kind of a fall from station in which the country which my forefathers fought for, bled for, suffered tremendously for that built this place it's it's changed in ways i don't think that they would you know wouldn't happen in their worst nightmares um i want to recover something of that uh, but i realize that, that you know i'm just an individual and this is you know i don't think we can go back i'm not one of the people who usually says the return thing but i i definitely feel that there is a sense of restoration and order and that that's kind of my project is wanting to be able to capture something by by kind of bundling up all these cinders, I'll be able to capture and, and restore something uh, from the past in some way. Very well put to say you try and keep one foot firmly planted in the past while writing about the present. More people should do that. Um, what, What's your opinion on the Blue Ridge Mountains? Mm, well, I love them. I, uh, I spend a decent amount of time there. Uh, we, I'll, I'll throw the kids in the car and we'll go up to the Shenandoah Valley sometimes. I, I do live in the South and so it's not too far of a drive. Um, but I do, I think it's a beautiful, you know, it's, it's interesting how ancient these mountain ranges are, you know, the Rocky mountains are majestic and, and I love visiting those, uh, but they're newer, right? Uh, this, this Appalachian region is so ancient and old and there's, there's just so much character there. There's a mystery there. I love taking my children to these kinds of places and allow them to kind of feel, 
the ancientness that is America. I mean, we oftentimes talk about how Europe is so much more ancient, and that might be true in some ways uh, with the people that live there and the kind of continuity of the history. But, you know, this this continent is very old, and it's a savage continent as well. And I feel like that can be captured in many of the mountain ranges that we all live around. And the mountains to me are also, you know, I, I had a conversation with Lee Smith recently, kind of talking a little bit about how we're all in the wilderness now in a metaphoric way. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in America, we are a wilderness people. You know, we yeah, have right. We, have we belong something. here. Right, right. What <laughs> we, better we opportunity? Do. Right. What better opportunity than no, we fighting fighting these monsters than we're fighting right now? You know, I mean, it's monsters are back, <laughs> but we should be happy. Yes. You know, we should be happy to fight them. No, I, I ask about the Blue Ridge Mountains because um, I went to school in D.C. I went to college in D.C. Uh, my father's mm. family lived in Virginia. Where my father's family is also one of these 1600s, uh, very old American families, except in the Chicago area. But we have a lot of Virginia ties. And I think that um, Virgin the Blue Ridge Mountains is the most beautiful place in the country. I think it's Blue Ridge Mountains, La Jolla, California, number two, and then like Montana, probably. But mm. those Blue Ridge Mountains, man, there is just nowhere like it. And even in the world, yeah, there's just something about it there that's absolutely perfect. Um, so I'm with you, man. One day I'm going to get the hell out of California and make it back <laughs> if, I, if I'm ever allowed to leave here, which probably soon I won't be. Yeah, you know, I do. I, I have to say, though, I'm one of those people that used to make fun of California. I can't now because I, I just... California is probably one of the most, uh, I mean, it, I, I'm I preaching to the choir here, but it's just a, it's such a, an, an incredible state. It has, it's yeah. just, I mean, really, it's probably some of the most valuable land on earth for a reason. Um, I hate to see what's happened to it, but it's, uh, it's all, it's one of those things. Like I, I learned Arabic when I was in the army and I used to talk to my old Iraqi professor about, you know, when, when she was uh, living in Iraq and she would talk about how she didn't really like talking about it because she wanted to remember it the way it was. And sometimes as someone who traveled to California and younger, my younger life, uh, I kind of feel the same way. It's a beautiful state, great people. I mean, some of the people on the right from California are probably some of the most based people I've ever met. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I share those feelings. Well, we have more Republicans than any state in the country, right? Besides one, besides yeah. Texas. There are more that Republicans in California, which is insane to think about. And it's like we have no power now. It's just totally a uniparty system. And it's just wild that there's so many of us here, yet we have no literally zero power at all. <laughs> um, so I, I am very curious. You, again, have a huge audience, 50K followers. How did you grow so fast? Well, you know, I... Um... So I kind of jumped into Twitter around uh, the, you know, I, I want to say the pandemic was just, you know, we were kind of into the middle of it for a few months. Um, I jumped onto Twitter and just, I don't know, I just, I wanted to share my my thoughts with the world, I guess. And I, I also felt like a great injustice was happening and I was privy to. And being a veteran, it's, and I hate when people bring this up as, as a veteran, but it's true. I mean, I just had a sense that a great injustice was taking place against good, decent people. And I just couldn't 
be quiet. Um, I used to write a lot more threads, long, lengthy threads. Some of them are pretty terrible, I'll be honest, as I've gone back and looked them over. But I, you know, I just started building this audience and I, I just really kind of followed where I felt like truth was. And that's, you know, I definitely have always been on the right. I've never been a lefty or anything. And um, I'm, I'm pretty boring and old fashioned in, in how I view the world. But I just found a lot of, I, you know, I was able to kind of chase after truth and found myself in this really weird corner of Twitter <laughs> as, as we both kind of navigate. And, and that's, and I, you know, I just, that's where I've been able to kind of find my people in some ways. And, and through just, you know, I'm, a, I'm an eclectic person. I have a lot of interests, just kind of sharing things, you know, my musings about politics, but also like personal experience and talking about family, things that I feel like are um, most important to me. You know, if I have an impression or something like that, that sometimes is probably a little too intimate for Twitter, but I still just put it out there as a shameless person. And uh, and that that's kind of how it started for me. I, I have... I started a lot with a lot of veterans. I mean, I kind of mostly, you know, confined myself to like a, you know, veteran circles. And then I started to kind of get into this weird political side of Twitter, uh, the kind of the right wing anon sphere, and just found a lot of really smart, I mean, people much smarter than me. I'm, I'm not somebody, I, I have no pretensions of being, you know, a brilliant person. I don't feel like I am. I'm, I'm of middling intelligence and I'm fine with that fact, but I've met people that I consider to have a level of genius that I I just couldn't find anywhere else. And so it's been a real treat for me. I don't think that I my account is large because I necessarily am the smartest person on Twitter or that I even have the, the most insightful things to say. But I like to have fun and I like to I like to interact with uh, the people that follow me. And so that always helps too. I also one other thing you know put out there I think for anybody on Twitter is I like to promote quality sharp people. And there are so many creative people on Twitter that have just blown me away. And I'm never, I, I never hesitate to share things that I feel like from people, no matter how small their account is, that I feel like is uh, truthful and, and important. And so that's also something that has kind of created a little bit of us, you know, a team spirit, I guess, within this tribe on Twitter. Are there any accounts that are your go-tos, like your best friends on there that are like you, like maybe Oren McIntyre, mm -hmm. anybody is anybody like that? Oren's one of the best. I mean, I, I definitely, I love reading what he has to say. I love Fisher King. He's oh, yeah. always been one of my favorites um, within this, this little tribe. Um, yeah. I, um, I want to, I mean, I, there, yeah, there are some really, really solid accounts. I'd say Fisher King, Aaron is is one of my favorites. Um, Martyr Maid. I do follow Mar Martyr Maid. I really yeah, like Martyr his, Maid. I like what he has to say as well. Um, smaller accounts, I, you know, well, there's like kind of this little southern corner that I really like. <laughs> uh, Chase Steely. I, I love uh, No Jesuit Tricks. He's amazing. He's probably the best writer I've ever I've ever read oh, on Twitter. Oh, I gotta, I gotta find no Jesuit tricks. I gotta find. Oh, uh, his his writing just—I mean, my writing is nothing compared to his. Um, Adanis Burke has got great threads on Southern history. I mean, I, I follow him and retweet him constantly. Um, I I think like when I I do like Kofi Annan. He's he's really he's great. And, um, 
Baron Shite poster is phenomenal. <laughs> Some of these guys <laughs> I've followed for a long time and they just, they blow me away with their, their, uh, insightful analysis. And so, I mean, there's so many others, I, I feel bad. I want to be able to mention everybody, but just off the top of my head, these are kind of go-tos that I frequently read uh, and just find very compelling. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a good list. We got to write, I'm going to follow all those after we get off of here. Um, okay. Let's dive into your, Oh, wait, final question in this topic the way I always ask, why are you Anon? Hmm. Um, I, one of the reasons I'm in on is because I want to feel uninhibited for the most part. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guarded enough because I want to be able to protect my family and provide for my family. And I don't really trust some of the, um, the temperament of some of the people out there that disagree. Right. So there is that consideration, but the other side of it too, is that, um, I want to be able to, I want to be able to speak openly about things without like I have no desire necessarily to make this like my thing I'm uh I like commenting I like I love writing but I don't necessarily want to build my life around this I enjoy my privacy I enjoy being somebody that you know people don't really know yeah um and kind of keeping a separation between what I talk about politically and 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 then the people that I just live around and love and be able to just go down and, and shoot the shit and talk about you know, the football game. I just, I like that there's a separation between politics and real life for me. Um, yeah. And that's something I maintain. I, the only reason I'm like, the only thing I'll say about this with regard to you is what's different with your writing and why your writing bring me, brings me so much hope is you write carefully. Many people in our space write the things they want to write like because they're anon, they want to have a dirty mouth. They, you know, they want to say bad things and this is the way they can do it. Right. And, and like, they're using that, they're getting it out and that's kind of why they're doing it. Right. Which I don't mind at all. I don't blame them for doing that whatsoever. I think it's great. It's hilarious. And I love them for it. I'm not saying it's bad. Your writing though, reminds me of somebody who is not anon because you're careful. Like you, you don't, your writing is not at all offensive, really. You're, it's very reasonable and you take, you take positions that are very much within the Overton window. Is that, do, is, do you, does that sound like that's correct? Like you're not out there just saying, mm -hmm. you know, crazy shit, really. You're saying very reasonable mm -hmm. courses of action. Yes. I th no, I definitely think that's fair. And I, I don't, I don't take umbrage to that at all. Some, some folks on the Anon side will, I feel like there's kind of a tendency to be there. There are people that will push that Overton window. And I think that's important. I agree with you. Um, and, I, but it's not for everybody. Right. And I think, you know, when I look at where, if I, if I have any hope for my writing or maybe connecting with people, it's not, I don't feel like my role has ever been somebody to, you know, break into that, 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 that cut, you know, cutting into that breaking ground, I guess. Uh, there are people that do that. And I really admire that. Um, it's, it's a dangerous work and I understand the risk they're taking. And so there's, you know, levels of respect that I have that kind of come along with that. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that if we were to sit down in person, uh, I think a lot of my followers would be surprised at, at what I, you know, what I believe. I never say anything that I don't believe, but at the same time, I kind of feel like, um, I, I just have a very, you know, I'm rooted in your regular 
decent, God-fearing American. That's kind of my person. And I realize, and I love and admire them. And they're the kind of people that I have surrounded my life with. Um, I want them to be able to have an avenue to exploring new ideas that, and, and maybe new ways of thinking that they haven't considered before, but might be more natural to them, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so does. I do feel like I I definitely interact with some of the more edgy accounts here and there. Um, but I I I like to kind of uh I like to meet people where they're at. Uh, I think this sensibility kind of comes from the military. I work with what I have. And I've just found that that's, that's my best place. That's where I feel more comfortable in it. And at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, I always take it very seriously. Like I have, I have a family to take care of. I have children that I love and a wife that I need to be able to uh, support. And so for me, um, I'm not, I'm just not in a position where I'm willing to go out there with, you know, three sheets to the wind and say everything that I truly think. If that makes sense. Of course. But what, I mean, you don't have to answer this, but why would your followers be surprised by what you believe? Um, I think just, you know, just one of the things off the top of my head is I, uh, I take a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by history and I don't, and it's not, I don't just come to this conclusion because it's, it's edgy or exciting, but you know, there's many, I mean, we're, we're living, we're drowning in propaganda. And then we have all these myth, you know, a very powerful mythos that we always have had these, right? I mean, I, I don't have a problem with us having national myths and, and the like, but I don't, I don't subscribe to a lot of those, those myths. I recognize them kind of for what they are, maybe even just artifacts of a time, but these are still very powerful myths with your average American. Uh, and so, I, okay. I see. I see where you're going. Yeah. I try to, I try to be fairly patient with people in that regard. You know, I, I, you know, if you, we were to sit down and have a, a discussion about where we're at, you know, and it's more free flowing and I can, you know, I trust the person, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I would, I would say things that would probably make, your regular person feel fairly uncomfortable not <laughs> okay. coming from a place yeah. of I got not, not not coming from like a place of uh you know I'm not one of those people who comes from a place that I have like antipathy towards anybody or towards even you know the past or things like that I kind of just accept it for what it is but that um I do think that we as as a people it's the American people you know if there is such a thing I think we have to be willing to start shaking ourselves free of some of these things that have really been very powerful for us in the past. If that makes any sense. I know that this sounds fairly like esoteric. No, I know what you're saying. You've said, I mean, this isn't actually saying anything out of line because you've said this on other podcasts. You've said that this Lincolnian idea, all men are created equal. That is in the declaration of independence. This is kind of what you're saying is one of these myths that hangs over us that perhaps was a product of the enlightenment that maybe we need to take another look at. Yeah, no. Yeah. And there are many things like that, you know, that I, right. I think you're, you know, when I talk to an average conservative, you right. know, they, yeah. they feel very strongly about, you know, the way they interpret things in the past. And, and I kind of almost every time in these conversations, I recognize that some of the things that they're holding so tightly to are probably not things that are going to help them get to the place that they want to go but I also realize, like, you know, we've all been there and I try to to provide um, try to provide like a little bit of insight that will help them to kind of be able to go their own way and hopefully find the truth where I have found it. But in their own way, in their own time. 
Right. Red pills. Dropping red pill crumbs to let them find the path. Um, right. Okay. So do you have any, in terms of mainstream writers, um, I know you've talked a lot about Christopher Caldwell, who I also, I love that book, Age of Entitlement, um, which I think your writing really feels like in the same space as that. And what I love about Caldwell and what I love about you is you just bring me such hope because I'm also trying to do the same thing, right? I'm I'm a face fag myself. But as a face fag, I'm trying to bring the normal people into our world. And in doing that, I have to be very careful. You know, I, I can't say, I can't write the first horrible thought that comes to my mind, right? I, I have to leave <laughs> um, uh, breadcrumbs, you know, in the same way. I have to do the work of finding what I can say to lead people to where I want them to go. So, and I, I think you're doing a great job of that. So I guess what I want to say is, is there any other people who aren't Anons whose writing is your influences? Yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big, I, I'm a student of the Southern tradition, you know, and like, I really do like Southern conservatism. Um, it's a different, I mean, this is very, I feel like Southern conservatism was kind of kicked to the wayside and it really doesn't have a, a very large, I mean, it's a sensibility in the South, but it's not necessarily like you're going to meet your average person who's read, you know, Richard Weaver or, 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 you know, Emmy Bradford or anything like that. But there are definitely a lot of writers in that tradition that I feel like provide, provide a lot of answers. Well, you know, their, their critique of modernity is very useful their critique of conservatism is very useful. Uh, I don't even know if I would call myself a conservative. I mostly just do it because it's how I can, you know, it's how I, when I'm talking to somebody, it's a, it's a way for me to signal, yeah, this is kind of what I am uh, and meet them on their own like level. But, um, you know, there are many writers who I really like. Um, I love, I love Mel Bradford is, I, I've dropped his name many times. I, I love his work. Uh, he's passed away. He's great though. Um, Richard Weaver is another one I really like. Going back further, I really like, you know, John Taylor of Caroline. Um, I think I read Sam, I've read Sam Francis a lot. I, I've really appreciated his work. I do, I, you know, I, I'm also, a, I do like Cote Villa. You know, there's, every one of these individuals are people that I might have some disagreement with, right? But they're, they're people that have helped, helped own my, my thinking a little bit. I think, Another contemporary I'd say would be like, I really liked Patrick Deneen's uh, Why Liberalism Failed. I believe that that's a really great book for people that are trying to approach these things. I've read Spangler. I I mean, really, there's some like deeper stuff there, but I've, you know, I've read a lot of folks in that, in that um, arena too. I find that there is a lot to be gained there. Um, Carlisle is another that I feel like is, you know, your average person would benefit greatly from kind of acquainting themselves with that he does a lot um, of hero stuff right carlisle yeah he does yeah, a lot and then of like kind, of, kind a, of hero journey pre um pre-hero journey kind of stuff yeah his his i think his most insightful work is when he critics i mean his historical work so he's written biographies but he's also he's also uh written about like the french revolution for example and then his critique of liberalism is got a lot of teeth. And I Ooh. think that that's something that people would benefit greatly from. 
it kind of takes you away from, you know, polemic writing. I mean, he does write polemic in a polemical style at times, but it's more approachable. It's a little, it's a little deeper. I think it's really good. Right. Okay. Awesome. That's really cool. What do you think about Dan Carlin? Oh, the his the history guy. Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. He's not even a writer, but he's a podcaster. But he's you know kind of a historian. Mm, right. He said he's not a historian. Have you listened to him at all? Uh, I used to. I used to listen to him a lot more. Um, I do like some of his. What I what I benefit the most from Dan Carlin would probably be from his like his bibliographies that he releases. A lot of the books he reads, I think, are really good. Uh, some of them, I'm not too crazy about. I think, you know, Dan Carlin's one of those people kind of like a Jordan Peterson type that I can, I can appreciate in certain respects, but then there's also kind of like a little bit of a, a disconnect from where I'm at now where I don't really feel as, as tightly connected to them. Yeah. Um, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Uh, well, he's think, also got like TD, you know, Trump derangement syndrome. He's one of those, he's like one of those Gen X, Gen Boomer who just cannot he just cannot see Trump for what he is. You know, it's he, it's just impossible. And it's impossible yeah, just kind of like trapped. Yeah. Well, and I think that like popularity and celebrity in some ways kind of traps people in this. And I totally understand the tension there. But I think it traps you in a certain place at times and it kind of compromises you to a degree. And I think that's happened to both those figures. Yeah, what's going on with Jordan is is very funny, but we'll save that for another time. Um, okay, let's dive just for a, a brief moment because I want to make sure we hit this into your military experience. Um, I've loved what you said on other podcasts. One of the things you've said is that there's this gut check moment in the military where you realize this really isn't what you signed up for. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is something I think I'll, I think uh, my generation of, uh, I don't know, they call them war fighters or whatever. I, you know, people that have served in the global war on terror. I think we all go through this moment, um, especially, especially those of us who um, might have taken the the patriotic gloss very seriously in the beginning. Um, you kind of go through this moment where you are heavily invested and involved. You are in some senses compromised and you, and you realize that this, this uh, engagement that you are involved in, that you have devoted a lot of your time and attention and, you know, you've suffered for, you've put your heart into, it's not really what you, you thought it was. And, you know, there's part of that is maybe from your recruiter, everybody talks about that. But for me, it was realizing that this thing that I was involved in, was not it was not necessarily in service of the the people that I thought I was protecting. It wasn't in service of the nation that I believed in at the time. And it, the gut check moment is is when you are in the thick of this thing and you have to kind of dig deep and say, well, what am I doing here then? You know, what can I hold on to if if it's not quite what it seems? And for me, and I think you know thousands of others, it was, well, at the end of the day, I'm here for the guy on my right and my left. And I know I'm loyal to them. And I know that I have a have a level of responsibility and commitment to these people. And, and why I think that this is important is because many of us today in America 2022 are in a very similar situation. Many things are collapsing that aren't quite what they seemed. 
Many of the promises made in the past and many of the expectations we had are not being met. And um, I think it gives us all a moment as we're out in the wilderness to make that make that same gut check realization. What am I doing then? Like who, like, what am I, like, what is this? And what am I involved in? And and who do I have loyalty to? Who am I responsible for? And I think that every American needs to ask themselves that because I, I think as this thing progresses, it is going to look more and more unlike the, the America we grew up in, you know, the country we lived in, the culture that we grew up in. And uh, not to necessarily like accept defeat. It's the opposite of that. It's that we need to find a place to stand and we might not be able to stand on the things that we thought we could a decade or so ago. But so what actually was the moment for you though? Like, did they, you know, I'm, in, I'm literally envisioning you're in Afghanistan and they're like, you know, go turn the, you know, turn the guys gay. Like, you know, or like what is that? Is there something, was there something that actually happened that made you, was it like a moment where you were like, Oh wow. Like I'm, and is that what you're saying that you're basically there to spread gl- globalist power? No, well, no, for me, and I think I honestly think, and this is kind of one of those misconceptions. I'm not saying that you don't understand, but I'm no, just saying I, I don't. It's, I, that's all there's. Right. I think a lot of I think a lot of guys on the right assume that the military has been thoroughly, you know, uh, uh, conquered by this weird ideology that they see on like libs of TikTok and stuff. And yes. that, there is definitely stuff like that creeping in. Right. Um, when I was in, I didn't see it quite like that. I, I kind of come from a, a special operations background. That's kind of my, uh, where I came from. I didn't see a whole lot of that. What was the realization for me? And I think most people was, you know, whether it was, in Afghanistan or in Iraq or where I was at, I was in another location. Um, you ask yourself, like, what are we doing here? You know, mm-hmm. and for someone in Afghanistan, it might be, why have we been here for 20 years? You know, what, like, who is this benefiting? Like, yeah, this is yeah. not, this is not what happened. And then if you're in Iraq and you watch the country collapse into chaos and you see, you know, if you're really dialed in, you understand that the, you know, that now there's like, you know, the, Iraqi parliament is now partially controlled by the Iranian government. You know, these are things we didn't, you know, we didn't, we don't want to achieve over there. Right. And and then where I was at, it's like, what are we doing here? Exactly. Like, why are we like, why are people that I know like in their lives, spending their lives, some of the best people uh, for what here? And you go home and you realize like no one's tracking the civilian population. I don't blame that, but they just don't, there's no like connection and it, this thing feels like a runaway train and you realize it's not in the service. Like it, it sucks you up and absorbs you because it, it holds on to these like very lofty patriotic ideals. And, and, you know, even like a more, a more intimate thing is like, I'm, I'm here to protect my family. I'm here to protect my community. Uh, and then you realize that it's not really like that. That's what it was for me. I didn't see a lot of this stuff creeping in in my area, although it was starting to come in. Wow. Okay. No, that makes, that's a great answer. That, that helps to clarify quite a bit. It's funny. I'm I'm coming from completely the other end of everything and we're like meeting in the middle, but um, so are there lefties in there at all? Like, did you encounter people that had this like woke mind virus even then or? 
I, you know, I did, really didn't run into many people I would say are woke. I definitely knew folks that came like guys that came from the left. Um, but, you know, this is the funny thing about the military when I was there is it was like I felt completely free for the most part. I mean, maybe not in front of like my commander, but in front of the guys that I worked with day in and day out to say what I thought about most things, you know, and as you can tell, you know, I was in an all male environment. So it's like, you know, everything is kind of like nothing's really off limits. Uh, there's this bond you, you know, you gain with people when you're in that kind of a situation, you can bullshit and tease each other. Um, and there would be lefties here and there, but they were uh, kind of an old school sort, you know, the kind of people that were slightly maybe hippies, but some of these guys, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest. I mean, I met, I knew hippies who were killers too. Yeah. You know? So it's like, <laughs> there was, but we had a common yeah. bond that where like yeah. politics just kind of like, it just melted away. Yeah, totally. Totally. It, that's fascinating. So you've talked a little bit about war movies um, and you've compared, you've basically said they're like Marvel movies. And even beyond that, they carry this message. War is always bad. And I think that that's very true. It's like every movie it's like, Oh, it's, it's really an anti-war movie. They always say that. So, um, do you see war movies today as propaganda? Absolutely. I I think a lot of I think a lot of war film most war films are either propaganda or you know something I don't like about even some of the war movies that people say are more realistic and whatnot is that it focuses on like fear, paranoia, and and despair in a way that while those things exist, right, in these situations, in these places, in these conditions, they are not, they, there is so much more to an experience like that, that I don't feel like it's enough oxygen. And I, it feels, I mean, it might, I might, I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to say necessarily that it must be this, but it feels deliberate. Um, it, I, it goes beyond what I would say would just be unfamiliarity or incompetence. This is, it, it's a very strident message uh, that war is always bad and therefore, you know, war needs to be deplored, which is funny to me because we live in a time when we're constantly at war it's and it's so viewed funny. as this like, and it makes no sense. Right. And I mean, these, and, but, and like, the thing is, is that, you know, war is terrible and there's no way around that, but war is permanent. And that's the thing I think we have to understand. I don't think we should be leading. I, you know, I'm very critical of of our foreign policy and always being at war. But at the same time, I recognize that war is always with us. It, you know, it's never going to be eradicated. And the more that we pretend that war is like a, a human defect, that it can be cured, uh, the more dangerous the war becomes for innocent people, the kind of people that I want to protect. Um, I think there are good war films out there. I think most of those war films are in, you know, older. I think they were made by people who had seen war. I think a lot of the stuff today either feels like a Marvel movie, like a video game, or it has just such, it just, it has such a, you know, focusing primarily on the pain and agony and paranoia where it becomes almost pornographic. And I don't like that either. Yeah. What are some good ones? Well, I'm going to be conventional here and say that the best one, one of the best ones is Apocalypse Now. And oh, same one thing. of the reasons. It's my favorite movie of all time. 
it's such a, I mean, and, and see the thing that I, I've had this running series. I've been writing on apocalypse. Now I've been, it's been installed for a while. I feel terrible about that. I've been trying to write this next installment of it, but you know, just to give kind of a, why it's such a good film is because it, 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 it explores those things that we talked about. It explores the pain and the darkness. It explores those things and the damage and the, and the suffering that a lot of guys that go down range carry back with them, but there's healing in it. And that I think people don't realize we focus so much. That movie is one of those movies where people, I hate reading reviews of apocalypse now because I feel like it always misses the boat, but it's, it's, always said to be like this is an anti-war film i've never felt that way no apocalypse now is not an anti-war film yeah, yeah. it's I don't a film think it that i don't either it's a film of rebirth and it's a film about uh, you know vietnam was very fresh in people's minds at this time and if there was any group of people that needed a sense of of healing and redemption and rebirth it was that generation and i feel like that movie was made with that in mind it's very nichean as well so highly recommend it to anybody who is a student of Nisha. I don't think you should ever watch that movie without having read The Birth of Tragedy by Nisha. I think if you read that and watch that film, it will blow your mind. But yeah, probably one of the best war movies ever made. Yeah, I mean, I completely, I love that movie too. I Also, I mean, uh, of course, it's based on the Conrad book, um, <clears throat> which really kind of does have a different themes, although they're somewhat similar. But I, I completely agree. I've never seen that. You know, everybody wants to say, oh, it's about a damaged, you know, it's about the depths of depravity and blah, blah, blah. And it does show you the absurdity of war. Um, and I think it does that in a very good way. But also it does it with a certain level of love. It's not, you know, just this depraved, horrible world. It's like you kind of love these guys also. And and I think that um, you're right. It's it, why do you connect it with birth of tragedy? You know, I'm a huge Nietzsche guy, but I basically just read the spake over and over again. Um, what, why birth of tragedy? Well, I, I think, so one of the things is, is you'll see in apocalypse now that there are like deep, like tragic themes. Um, Willard is like, a, I, well, Kurtz especially is a, is a very much like a tragic hero which he's cast as a villain. I don't really actually buy into that. Um, and it there is this sense of the Dionysian and the Apollonian coming into conflict throughout that film. And wow. Kurtz really embodies the Dionysian uh, better than almost any other film I've ever seen. Um, I love when he talks about a snail balancing on a razor, crawling yeah. on a razor, however he puts it. <laughs> Very much, in my opinion, is, is that that aspiration of trying to unite these two powerful inimical forces. Um, and what you see at the end of the film is if you go back into birth of tragedy, and I'm going to explain more of this in my, my pieces, but if you go back into the birth, into birth of tragedy and in, in the tragic chorus and the union between the Dionysian and the Apollonian and the healing that comes from that, um, you know, you see this with Willard at the end of the film where he he is leaving this broken Apollonian world where the dream has been shattered and he's absolutely distraught from this. Right. He's had that that what you know, what Schopenhauer talks about, the veil of what is it, Maya. Um, and 
realizing, like having acquainted himself briefly with that Dionysian force that brings him to his knees, he goes and and seeks it out in Kurtz. And Kurtz embodies this. And notice that when at the end of the film, you know, he he does what he needs to do by, you know, by basically killing Kurtz. And by doing so, you're able to unite these two things. And he finds healing and rebirth in that. Ah. Uh, to me, there's just so many elements of, of Greek tragedy. Uh, there's so many Nietzschean themes, which I don't think is an accident. Uh, I've always interpreted it that way. And I've, I've had a lot of people that don't, don't take my, my, my stance on this, but I feel like uh, maybe your listeners will. And I think it would benefit them greatly to check that out. I think your uh, your whole I'm not too smart thing cover just got blown, man. <laughs> I think I think, no. I think this whole I'm just a normal guy. I think you just revealed that you're actually really, really smart. Uh, definitely smarter than me. I haven't read any of this stuff, man. I mean, I've read again. I just read. Um, I'm, I, I'm completely obsessed with Nietzsche, but it's just from the spake. But now I'll go read uh, Birth of, of Tragedy. I do think that actually a lot has been said about even Kurtz from Conrad being a Dionysian character. So I think you're dead on there. Um, mm. But uh, very cool. So actually the one last thing I wanted to ask you here is, and I, I love that you're saying this about apocalypse now, because as somebody who, you know, I almost became a Jag, but they wanted nothing to do with me. And then I became, you know, like a vice <laughs> Gonzo Bukowski writer. Uh, but uh, I really wish I had served in the military. You know, it's something that I I wish I'd made it all the way there. I just came from so the other side that I couldn't make it. But what you see in a lot of these anti-war propaganda films is the same character that has PTSD, right? Especially now. For some reason now in, in today's world, it every war-ish movie, we have this PTSD guy whose brain is destroyed and their body is destroyed. Um like, did you see the contractor with Chris Pine? Yes. Oh, yep. Terrible. <laughs> and, you know, and that other one with Chris, uh, the other Chris, that show that just came out. Um, and I, it's hard for me to tell. Like, I want when I look at that, I want to say this is kind of bullshit. Like, they're they're trying to do the same thing they do with all mental illness which is kind of paint anybody who's been at war with their damaged beyond belief you know they they're this damaged thing because as you're saying they want to believe that all war is bad even though a hundred years ago we had teddy roosevelt telling us men need war and he went out and sought war right he he tried to find wars to get into which is like we're supposed to believe that in a hundred years that entire instinct in men is just gone like it's oh it's gone. We're all supposed to pretend that any man who touches war is going to come back and have PTSD. Um, but of course I don't have the right to say this because I've never been in war. I don't know shit, right? I'm a total like pussy. So I guess do you find that treatment of P PTSD to be real, or do you think that that's kind of part of the propaganda? Um, you know when so I'm one of the. I'm one of those people who I'm not going to try to speak from a position of, of not, you know, of, without my experience. I'll just say this, that um, I think that this portrayal of the broken veteran is really damaging. I yeah. think it's a bad yeah. thing. I think it I think it it not only hurts 
the veteran, but it hurts civilians. Um, there is, you know, there are good movies that I think make through this. I think like Band of Brothers was really good for various reasons. One of the things I liked the most about it was showing this constant commitment of to, you know, Dick Winters is a fantastic character and a real person, right? Um, you know, he he saw it all. He experienced it all. He had severe PTSD at the end of it. Um, but he was always demonstrating leadership and finer qualities. That's what we should all strive for. You know, there are many there. Are, and I'll just from my personal experience, I served with people that had severe PTSD that still kept going on deployments and still kept working through it. And I, and I, I knew guys that 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 it crippled them and was very difficult and has been very challenging after they've gotten out. And then I know people that have done all sorts of things uh, that it just doesn't quite affect them in that same way. But everyone I know who has been able to overcome these things, they might not be able to completely overcome it ever, but that they've been able to work through it and move forward and try to have healthy, productive lives. That's most veterans. I don't like the the portrayal because it 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 looks like a sense of like permanent defeat. And that's right. not what yeah. it is. Yeah. And I and a bad thing about this is that it becomes this you're damaged goods. And the best thing you can do is go sit in the corner and we'll give you drugs, yeah. which has yeah. been incredibly yeah. damaging yeah. to people. Um, there is a way to work through these just things like anyone else. Ancient, ancient armies and soldiers had to do the same thing. You have to put in the work and do the, you know, and do what you have to do. And if that requires you to go and you need to talk to somebody, you need to get some professional help, then go do that. And that's a noble and good thing to do. Take care of yourself and take care of your family. Uh, but I think that this, this, it, there's almost just like a, a glamour, like a glamorizing of this like broken, shattered person. Yeah. And I just, it, that's not been true to my experience. And it's not it's not good for people to see that there are heroic qualities in people that serve. There are there are people that I have served with who I have immense amount of respect for and seen them do things that have <laughs> restored my faith in humanity and encourage. Those are the qualities that do come out in times like this as well. And, uh, you know, the focus on just PTSD alone, I think, has really, really hurt us as as a society and a culture. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's like pathologizing the warrior. It's refusing to celebrate any of the traits of the warrior that are beautiful and awesome that we all as men particularly admire if we're being honest about it. And it's instead only portraying them as these damaged weak you know, it's showing them as weak, right? And and we're we're not. It's they're only they only are valid. Like a soldier, an ex-soldier is only valid if he's so damaged by the things that he's done that he can't live with himself, right? Like that's the only right. way and that it, you're a good soldier, you know, or a good person, right? A good character. And it's well, just, and I think that that's a. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean because no, 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 I would no, just no. say I think that that's. And I think that where it's been very damaging to veterans is that it it gives them the incentive that the only way that you'll matter, that anyone will even care about what you've done or gone through, or maybe just the, the fact that you know you served at all is to be if if you confess yourself as being a victim. Uh, I think even beyond the weakness is the sense of victimhood. And yeah, I hate yep. seeing that because 
the thing that attracted me to the military, the thing that I love the most about it was being able to be free of that plaguing desire that seems to be enforced everywhere in our society of being a victim with right. a grievance. Yeah. Right. And there are guys who have suffered a lot. I know people that have lost limbs. I know people that have I mean, losing friends and things like this, but they do not see themselves as victims. And every time Memorial Day rolls around, every time we remember the dead, you know, we go hit the gym and we do our best and we live a happy, healthy life because we are we are grateful that we have the gift of life, whereas other people who are better than us did not. And I feel like that, that that needs to be emphasized. There is a sense of loving life and, and, and seizing it and being grateful for it, a gratitude. And I, most veterans who I like and admire are people like that. They're not people that see themselves as victims. You can suffer from these things, and that is there's no shame in it that you deal with this, that you have this burden, but don't be a victim. And, you know, that's... and it's all it really like this is up to us and i i don't like how you know if you'll notice the only veterans that that the media seems to care about are veterans who either have a very radical political disposition or they're so broken so they can become a prop yeah yeah. and i just think it's it's a dehumanizing thing that just it it bothers me a lot yeah I, i agree i feel the same way um okay so let's uh just move on to the last couple of topics here so the elections, you've written great stuff about the elections, some really good analysis. Uh, in one of your recent pieces, you talk about this thing of Republican trifectas. So now there's 23 Republican trifectas in state legislatures and state governments. So what exactly does that mean? And like, why is that an improvement from where we were at before? And what can these state bodies of power do? Okay, so no, this is a great point. And this is something I think, you know, if you find yourself on the America first, you know, wavelength, this is something we really need to start thinking about is that all the problems we're identifying that have that have just really, really hurt us is are things that we have well within our power to change. Um, We have an advantage. We're fighting an asymmetric conflict, but we do have advantages. One of those is the local The local is a place we can dominate. It's a place we can control. One of those is by by seizing our state legislatures, seizing the local, right? And a trifecta is when, you know, you have one political party. It has the governorship, a majority in the Senate, and a majority in the House, okay? And a triplex, which I talk about there, is when you also have, you know, the, the state's attorney general, right? There is a lot you can do with this. And there are many states which Republicans enjoy a trifecta. There are some states which they enjoy the tri- triplex. You know, the, who has control over the, you know, the 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 way and manner of an election? That's your state legislature. All the problems we're identifying with the election, right? These are things that state legislatures have. They have constitutional authority over. And I realize, like, I'm going to get blowback on this from folks in my sphere that are going to say I've completely given up on the constitution. It does not have any teeth and so on. There's a lot of truth to that. Right. But the point is, is we're fighting in an asymmetric conflict, like I said, and part of that is we have to work with what we have. So there are pragmatic concerns that we can work with, but there's also the question of legitimacy, right? 
we are not just trying to win an election here. We're not just trying to get our guy in power. We are trying to build legitimacy because legitimacy does matter. And one of the things that I think is really, you know, the regime that we have that unfortunately can last a very long time, what what smooths its operations and makes things much easier is when it has the cons- it has even the perceived consent of the people. It has to have a level of legitimacy. Political capital matters. And so even when we don't win an election, if we can build legitimacy, if we can show the American people that their consent is appreciated and respected more by us than by the power we are opposing, that only benefits us. And and I think that, you know, unfortunately, and I, you know, I, I have, uh, I'm a, I've really, I was very pleased with Trump's, you know, term. Um, one of the things I w- wished I would have seen more of after he had left office was building more of this local and state coalition of America first types within the local and state governments. These are places where we can do more to prevent the kind of shenanigans that we saw in 2020 and just recently. These are ways for us to build a new bench of talent and to feed into the national sphere. All these things can only benefit us and we have the most control over that local area. So my my urging for America First as a movement is to not seed the national but we need to put a lot more muscle at the local and the state. And many of these long-term problems we're now grappling with would be ameliorated if we do that. So why do Republicans have an edge, it would seem, on these local races? One of the reasons is, is because the way in which counties and the way that our government, you know, federalism, you know, it is, it is, it is, it was designed in a way that for whatever reason, you know, the residue of old America tends to be Republican, that it has benefited this party that is able to utilize like the the fact that you have a geographic spread, right? You're not clustered in certain areas. The way that the county system works, the way that, you know, state legislatures are set up, you know, these are all vestiges of the old Republic, which has been long gone, right? But Republicans have a almost inherent advantage in that in that system, right? They, I don't understand why we don't take more advantage of this. I don't understand why the focus is not there. It's, I mean, I guess if your if your object is to win, I think that it should be there. If your object is just to get money or <laughs> other things, sure, and that might be that might be what we're dealing with, right? But there's a difference between the Republican Party of a state like Alabama, which enjoys a, a trifecta. And then the, you know, the RNC in DC, there's a huge difference there. If you want to see more, if you, people like, you know, Alabama and the style of Alabama or, or maybe another, you know, deep red state, you know, you need to build from that. If you want to see more people coming from that and being cultivated by this, it, you have to build from the local. But I don't think the establishment Republican Party really necessarily wants that. Um, and I think that there's a big difference. I think I think people on the ground right now, the big variance you see is that the the rank and file want to win. The those who hold the reins of power do not want to win in the same way. And that's a problem. Yeah, definitely a problem. So we can't this brings up, of course, the issue of whatever is going on with these elections. Um obviously not the state ones, right? At least to a large degree, but 
um, what's happening with these mail-in ballots. Um, what do you think is happening here? I mean, do you think that, because w- what I thought you were saying with this, honestly, was more like we can win these local things because they're not being fucked with. <laughs> you know, they're not being tampered yeah. with. So, no, I mean, I don't, I don't know how true that is. Look, I mean, the thing that I have to say about this election fraud thing is, look, you just can't get anywhere without proof. It's just, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how much it looks bad. It, it, you, it's just, it is almost a waste of time to even try unless, until you have proof. Um, exactly. and, and you said something about this. You say in one of your things, tedious debates trying to provoke, uh, tedious but debates trying to prove election fraud tend to obscure the obvious that most regular Americans expect their elections to be timely and transparent as any other public or private transaction. That future elections ought to meet these common sense expectations is a winning message that will resonate with others. So the only thing I found difficult to parse here is how do you message the latter, which is that we ought to have fair and free elections, fair and transparent election uh, uh, elections without tediously debating about election fraud? No, that's a good question. So let me say this is that, okay, so I, I definitely think that there are shenanigans, illegal shenanigans that are happening in certain places. Okay. That has been with us since the beginning to prove that is incredibly difficult. Right. But the American people feel this way. There are millions of Americans, even Democrats that do not trust these elections for a reason. I think that we need to um, we need to be very like the well Republican establishment should take that very seriously. Now, what we're talking about here, though, isn't just one thing. And I think a lot of because a lot of Americans are unfamiliar with the way in which all these things work and the kinds of forces that are at play. You know, it's not like somebody pulling a lever or pushing a button. It's not even necessarily always like somebody going out and hiring a bunch of people to to mess with the election, okay? There are many ways in which you can influence an outcome of an election. This is a broad, I mean, American elections have always been a street fight. They really have. Um, But the thing that I think we need to focus on here is because this is where it's kind of like the setup every time. I'm not saying that if you see a problem, you don't cry foul. But what I'm saying is for those of us and for people within with a position of power or authority over anything in the, involved in this need to try to understand that like we are dealing with, we are dealing with a situation in which you need to, that messaging does matter. And it matters because there are a lot of people that remain unconvinced that there is a problem at all. And a good way to at least message part of this by pulling those people over is to say that whatever, whatever is the case, you know, and we can go into all the, you know, accusations and so on, which are, I feel like there's a lot of truth to that. One thing you, everyone, even if they don't want the outcome, they're going to have to at least rhetorically agree with is that this looks incompetent. This looks stupid. This looks worse than, you know, some of the, some of the third world countries I have lived in, these elections are even more absurd and ridiculous. You know, this common sense expectation that like when you go to a store and you buy something that you can, you the transaction is seamless. It doesn't take three weeks. Yeah. You know, these are things that, 
that's a, a, a very normal, understandable expectation. On the inverse of that, that's really difficult for somebody who has ill ill intent to be able to really fight against and have a good case. So I think when we're dealing at elite levels, this is the messaging that should predominate. And the other stuff is very important, but it needs to be seized upon more locally. The narrative should be, this is incompetent. It's ridiculous. This has a disparity between these two parties and their voters. And the American people are not happy with this. I can propose I can propose that we take these elections and we make them work again. We restore confidence in the election. Okay, I, see. I think I see that when it comes to an elite messaging, that's where it needs to go. Now, where the rubber meets the road got at the it. local level, that's where you got to have those knife fights, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's not they're cheating. It's let's streamline these things to update them to be efficient and make sense more so than screaming about fraud when we don't have any proof. Yeah, maybe like, you know, we need somebody, whoever is going to be the Republican contender in 2024. I hope it's a certain person, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I still, I'm still believe in Trump. Okay. And, but, you know, what I would really like to see at that top level is saying, this is unacceptable. Everyone can agree that taking a month to count your votes is some third world nonsense. We are Americans. <laughs> we right. can do it better. We're not doing this. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, this is the same thing. I mean, it's tied into everything else. Every time the progressives and all their little groups and all their, you know, all the machinations behind this giant machine of, you know, incompetence gets involved, it makes everything poor quality. It makes everything fall apart. People don't like it, so on and so forth. That should be the 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 real, like, ball of energy that goes into 2024 and then these very legitimate accusations that are coming behind it also need to be dealt with. But I think at a very local level, because let's be honest, what's happening in Arizona is not happening in my state. It's not. And if we make that the narrative for the whole country, it, it's just not going to I don't think it's going to make the difference. And it's also not going to pull over the it's not going to we need the legitimacy. Right. And I think a lot of guys in the, the right wing in on sphere get this mixed up when I talk about this. I'm not saying to concede to the corrupt elites. What I'm saying is we need to beat them, but you can't beat them this way. You got to beat them in a way that works for that group of people. And what's going to work when you're messaging against the elites is showing that they're incompetent. They're grossly incompetent. They can't run an election efficiently. They can't run it well. They can't even run anything that they touch well. That's a winning message. That I totally get it. I to totally get it. I, I think that that is very clear and very important for people to understand is that whining about fraud just is not going to do it. It just doesn't work for some reason. Behind the scenes, as you're saying, proof of it should be being chased absolutely relentlessly by whoever we have, but they should be doing it quietly. You know, and and not exactly. that shouldn't be the message because whining about that is not going to get us anywhere. Uh, whereas what we can say is these things need to be cleaned up. Right. And we're not saying cleaned up because they're dirty. We just mean it's absolutely ridiculous that they work. Suddenly they work the way that they do. Right. I mean, it's like in L.A. even, you know, we had 
we used to know the mayor every time uh, the night of the election. Now, suddenly, Karen Bass creeps. It's the same process. A, a month goes by and now, oops, even though uh, Caruso won night of now, she's the mayor. You know, it's like anybody can see that this is a stupid and ridiculous system, which is what you're saying. It should be a systemic argument. Well, and, you know, exactly right. And the, and the thing to remember here is that, you know, how did the Democrats get this? They didn't just invent this in 2020. Mark Elias and Perkins Coy have for, for years have been going into these swing states, bringing up court cases quietly and winning them almost every time. The RNC sends their B team in and they lose every time. And then the next thing you know, you have the election is, quote unquote, fortified in that state to yeah. be an advantage for the Democrat Party. They didn't come around and, and and you know, this wasn't on the news all the time. You know, they did this in a very intelligent manner. What I propose is we need to put them on their heels. Right. We need them to play defense. When you say, how can you argue against making this thing better? You are, right. you know, like justify having you know, 5,000 layers of bureaucracy involved in this, justify having a month to count your votes. Like these are things that you, they need to be put on the defense. And if we if we go about this the correct way, they will have to be arguing for incompetence. And that's what I want to see. Right. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I think that's such a great call. I hope somebody involved in at least the America First side's messaging can pass that along. Uh Okay, cool. So let's finish this up by the the big topic, Trump versus DeSantis. So you said to me, uh, which I thought was really smart at one point, uh, razzle dazzle is nothing compared to sweat work. So what did you mean by that? Where do you stand on this debate? And what should we be, you know, who should we be going for? Or should we not even look at it like that? No, I think, I mean, yes, the razzle dazzle is... It's it's useful. It has its place. I'm not against razzle dazzle itself, but we really need some sweat work. This is why we're getting cleaned up in places that we're we should be winning these places with no no questions asked, and we're getting worked over. Um, and part of this is and you know in the Trump and DeSantis like I I'm kind of in a weird spot here because I don't I I I am nervous about this moment because I see a lot of forces coalescing around trying to trying to sideline Trump and trying to make this into a like an you know inter-party war. Uh, these, you know, there's a lot of bad actors involved in this. There's a lot of old familiar faces that are coming back and trying to stir the, you know, stir the pot. And then at the same time, I see folks on my side that I think I agree with a lot, but you know, they're like attacking DeSantis and, and making it seem like he's just a complete patsy. And, and this is the thing, like we don't need to have this debate right now. That's the thing. We don't need to have this debate. We're getting sucked into uh, a pointless, like intra-party conflict that does not need to take place right now. And I, I just, we don't need to go and try to kick that football right now. We'd have to eventually, but it's not right now. What we should be doing is focusing on the sweat work. You know, it's this is not a quality candidate issue. We need to be reforming the system. We need to be getting our people in place at a local and state level. We need to be making sure our elections in our areas are clean, that they work. 
you know, even if you live in an area that is voted, let's say you're a Republican and you voted and it's voted Republican consistently, that might not always be the case. So your your call, if you're wanting to be involved, is to make sure that you cover down on the area, you know, tend to your garden, as we would say. And all this, you know, highfalutin nonsense that's happening up in D.C., it's it's pointless. We need to be focusing on the sweat work. Like I said, I wish, you know, one of my one of the problems I've had kind of with the America First movement is that it has not been as invested in building local, like a local coalition and making sure that those state legislatures reflect the America First viewpoint, that they reflect those people, you know, the rank and file. We need to be like, we really need to be digging trenches right now. The Democrats are digging trenches. They're not just doing victory laps. Like I said, that, you know, law firm, the DNC is dispatching their lawyers. You know, they are they are funding local elections. They're taking the sheriffs and trying to and trying to turn sheriffs into their, you know, absorbing them into this thing. And what are we doing? We're talking about Trump and DeSantis. To me, this is a distraction. Yeah. Uh, we need to be doing that sweat work, the razzle dazzle, you know, changing like there's a lot of grifting that goes on in this world in politics. And uh, you know, you might, you know. Building awareness and nonsense like that is pointless if you don't have an apparatus around it. we got to build that apparatus. Well, but isn't so much of the problem – I mean I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, I have been disappointed in how the frogs, the frog Twitter people who are my people, how they've reacted to DeSantis. I, I think they're wrong about him and I think they're falling into this exact trap that you're saying. <laughs> which is, which we don't need to be in, you know, and if we're serious about winning, it's very silly to, to get so involved in this. I mean, I understand their paranoia, but it's just too much. But the problem is, unlike the left, which is completely unified and totally under the banner now of whatever, globo, homo, whatever you want to call it, right? The The, the global regime, the person who is undermining the sheriff's election literally is George Soros. I mean, that's not a conspiracy. That is literally true. He is the one who's targeting these sheriff's races, these DA races. He's the guy who put in Chase Abudin. He's the guy who put in um, Gascon here in LA. He is literally doing this. And everybody is falling in line on the entire left. The old radical left, right? The guys who used to protest the WTO meetings, they're done. The identity politics killed them. They're gone. You know, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street people, they're dead. They, that doesn't even exist anymore, as far as I understand. But on the right, we have a massive rift. We have America first, and then we have the neocons, right, who seem to kind of still be in control of power. So it's like, even though your messages and what you're saying here is so right and so true, so true, how do we tangle with the fact that there could be these neocons that will just make it so this can't happen? Like, how do we deal with that? Well, you know, I don't mean to beat a, a dead horse here. But we have this is where our advantage is. Seizing D.C., like going straight for the Capitol is not really in the cards for us, for our types. That's why we love Trump. Right. Trump was able to go in there and take the Capitol. But he had a fight of his own. Right. Um I think a lot of us got really animated by the fact, thinking that we could do it easy, that we could get our guy in there or somebody who finally, you know, represents 
uh, our interests and that he would go in there and solve all the problems as the executive. And it's just not how things work, right? We're in a conflict, a protracted conflict. Uh, we can't just take the capital and, and then everything will get better. We have got to have a bench. We have got to have bulwarks set up in our local areas or else it will be carved out by the by donors on the left. We have seen that happen. I mean, I, I have a county that is deep red next to me and it's it's county council. Yeah, the county council has been completely they are Republicans, you know, openly Republican, but they are private Democrats and they get money from some of these donors out of state. And they've been able to completely take over a county, a, a wow. rural county. Now, what does that tell you? And what are we doing? And that's the the thing where I get so frustrated with this is because, you know, like there's a lot to learn from DeSantis. Even if you feel like I, I share these concerns to be clear with you. One of the things that worries me is I know that the same, the usual suspects are going to wave the ring in front of his, his face. And the question is, will he go for it? You know, will he be the bridge to pull the neocons back over? Will he be the bridge to bring the establishment back in and give them, you know, and, and, and remove this America first faction from the table over time? I don't know, but I, I, I can't say that he necessarily will. I don't have a verdict on that. And, and and again, like I said, that hasn't happened yet. So what he has done is very instructive. The, instead of attacking him, even if you don't like him, you need to be taking notes on what he's been able to accomplish right. and achieve. Yeah. Florida does not have the election problems that we saw yeah. earlier. Florida yeah. was able to sweep. I mean, the, the wave was in Florida. That was not an accident. And a lot of that is, of course, from immigration, you know, emigration, but you know, this, there was a lot of good politics going on over there and he's building, I mean, when, if he takes the presidency, let's say he's going to bring Florida people with him, he's not going to be necessarily pulling on folks in DC. That might be a good thing. But the point is, is like, he now has his own people. He now has quality, competent people under him. Okay. Like anyone who takes the mantle of America first in the future, so if it's Trump, he needs to be bringing in his people. Well, it's a lot easier to bring in people when you have built out a deep bench in these enclaves where you have command of the local political terrain. And that's what we should be doing. That's where our money should be going, not up to win red all the time. We should be focusing on helping candidates at a local level win and create that bulwark for us. Right. Yeah. I, I, it's just, I like what I'm visualizing in my head is just, so are, are you thinking that the neocons, it sounded to me like you were saying that even bringing them back in is instantly a lost cause or, or is there an opportunity for somebody like DeSantis to come in and actually literally bring them back into the fold or are they just bad actors like is it just well, about undermining them completely or is there some chance that somebody you know like for example i have several uncles and family friends who are centrist conservatives and they just will never vote for trump you know it's just it's just like they something about him he just completely makes it they're like i won't even do it i can never do it i can't even think about it right I, I know some kind of like Ivy League types who it's the same thing. Whereas DeSantis, they'll all vote for him. So I, I'm wondering, is there a framework 
in which the people like that who are neocons can be lured back to America first with just a, a, a more bland, boring guy? Good question. I would say this. This is how I stand on this. The neocons are still in D.C. The neocons are still firmly entrenched in that world. The, the elite ones. OK, yeah. your average rank and file voter who, you know, maybe supported Iraq and felt, you know, they, if they're they on board with Ukraine. Now, a lot of these people are just, you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful to you know friends and family, but they're just deeply propagandized and they're going to probably right. go with whoever they might not go for Trump. You're right. There are a lot of people like that. But they're going to they're going to get in line with almost anyone who talks about having a strong military, let's say. What I would say, though, is I when I say we need to keep the neocons out and when I say that I'm talking about the neocons who have been driving our foreign policy, have been you know wheedling their way in and during the Trump presidency and kind of hijacking you know what he wanted to do and he had to fight with. The ones that want to build up the security state even further, that have no problem with having a a disadvantageous relationship with China, um, those are the people we have to keep out. I don't think that there any Republican that takes this mantle, ha, like if they care about this movement, if this movement is to survive, the neocons have to be exiled from power as much as possible. Rank and file voters. You know, let's call a general amnesty for the people. You know, you're it doesn't matter if the average voter had a problem with Trump and then, you know, whatever. I don't really care about that. What I worry the most about are people with power and influence that are in the beltway that needs to be purged. And that's kind of where I, I am with this is I, I haven't been pleased with some of the things Trump's done. Right. I'm I'm a normal person. Like there are things that I agree with more things I agree with than I disagree. But there are things that I haven't been pleased with. OK, I don't voice those because they're not really needed to be said at this time. But the thing that I am, you know, I don't hate DeSantis, but I am concerned that because he could be a bridge, like you mentioned, right, he can be a bridge with those people that the the Washington establishment will try to broker some kind of like arrangement with him that unify the party is how they'll put it. But they'll bring back the same old cast of characters and the problems and right. again, yeah. once again, you know, and the, to kill the populist thing. And that's right. they, they're going to try to jettison that movement. Now, I don't know if DeSantis is going to take that bait. And he might be. I mean, there's a, always the possibility he could try to out. You know, he could be an F, inner FDR in there and be able to out Fox these guys. Yeah, that is always a possibility. But at the same time, like it deeply concerns me because I know Trump. Trump can make mistakes and Trump has made many mistakes. He's trusted bad people before. But he, they hate him and they cannot really control him in that in the way that I am most concerned about. And that's why I had been reluctant to I don't wade into this, but I've also I don't disparage Trump. You know, Trump has I think he gets doesn't get enough credit for the amazing things he was able to do for the kind of person he was. It was so unexpected the kind of candidate he the type of candidate like that being able to burst onto the scene and and. The biggest thing is be able to, you know, finally tie that loop between being against endless war, but also being a patriot. Yeah, right. No one else could have done that. That's huge. Yeah. So I'm not ready to like, you know, call it quits with Trump, but I, I'm also not going to just go out and guns a blazing on DeSantis if I haven't seen him accept that peace offering from the establishment. You know, I'll have to just wait and see.
That was very well put. That was a very well good way to break that all down. And I guess it's like, yeah, I, I think my only like nagging wish was that actually, you know, the neocons weren't such a lost cause. But I think you're right that they totally are and they totally always have been, right? I mean, we know that. We know that they're the enemy. So I think you're right that they their dream is for sure to find some way to make a deal with the DeSantis and then slowly but surely just defang everything populist about it and just return to, you know, basically return to everything that the left, which is not actually the left, is doing to the country, right? Because they're all one party. So I think you're um, exactly right there. Sadly, it's just I think uh, the, the issue, again, is... um how do you the the left you were saying that the left is going after these DAs and everything which i think we should do but they're doing that the reason they can do that is because they're entirely unified it's just going to be much harder for us to do that with the money coming in and everything right well yeah and that's where like we have to play to our advantage right like a local election and when i say local like state legislature right they have they have constitutional authority over much of this that has been a problem for us. It is not that expensive to fund a, a candidate for a local legislature. Yeah. It just does not get any attention from the power brokers in Washington. But, you know, the, the Democrats have a strategy for this and they're working on this and and they, they can afford to because they have so much machinery behind them. OK, so they can be crazy. They can destroy half the country with AstroTurf riots. They can do these yes, things. Yes. The yes. advantage we have is that they can have money. But I have seen this happen. There are there are elections that they have dumped millions of dollars in and they've still lost because they cannot overcome the votes. And one of the reasons is, is because they have those areas locked down and they have a population that is really difficult to propagandize. Why we are not building on top of that, I have no idea. Um but this really gets down to it. I, you know, America first has got to change its perspective a little bit. The national matters. I'm not trying to say seed that ground, but man, if you want your money to go to a place that's going to have a lot more length and it's got legs on it, you know, focus a lot more of your time and attention on that local. You know, we're, I mean, what did we see? We saw millions of Americans going out and expressing disgust at the way that their local schools were being run. Yeah. Where did even we Even in San Francisco, right? Flights? I mean, you heard about San Francisco. And in San Francisco. Yeah, even there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And why aren't we running? Like, we have energy there. We have interest. It's even going across party lines. It would be so much more effective to focus on building something from that than simply just trying to play 2016 all over again up in D.C., it's not going to happen that way ever again. And I'm not saying that we don't want to have that yeah. energy and that sign of perspective or abandon the platform at all. What I'm trying to say, though, is that, man, you have all these advantageous areas and places where you can build a strategy, you can refine your tactics, and there's just nobody there. Nobody's thinking that there are people that are thinking that way. But let's say if you have if you have establishment types that are getting to these fights first, they're going to take those areas. Where is America first on this? Like, we really need to have a strategy. Go where the energy is. Go where the, you know, go where the fighting is good, where the fighting position is strong. That's where we need to be focusing a lot more attention. Yeah, this is very genius. This is exactly what we need to do. You're completely right. The momentum's already there. 
and instead were as you just put so well trying to recreate 2016 in some in some weird way instead of going to the places where we can win where they're not paying attention and and that's really what we need to be doing i i completely agree it's it's very smart and <clears throat> yeah it's not necessarily taking a page out of their playbook but it's yeah what are these winning issues you know it's <clears throat> the school stuff it's the masks on the kids stuff and those really are local issues right so i think that that's really smart to just bully our way in on these local levels it's like yeah let's get let's get a republican in san francisco i mean my my friend and i have this joke about uh duck fernandez which is we have this dream of a, an L.A. grassroots, really handsome kind of Reaganite Catholic Mexican based guy who will inevitably rise to you know be the mayor of L.A. and the governor of California and the next president of the United States. And, you know, he drives a like right now he's you know painting houses in Huntington Beach, just waiting <laughs> to one day, you know, waiting to one day rise and uh I think the way that he rises, you're right, is through, you know, we just get a based guy, run crazy ads. Yeah, we get some of the big money to run crazy ads, just like Soros does, except for a based guy in a couple key locales. It's great propaganda and everybody wants it, right? Every, nobody wants this fucking trans gay shit in schools. You know, nobody wants kids to be masked. It's like if somebody was going into these places and actually owning this messaging and that's where we can win, that's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, why why would we cede that ground where we already have? I mean, and, and the media, like this is the thing I don't think people realize, like this issue of having like, you know, the kids in schools with the masks and the terrible education and all the all the social issues, you know, that are floating around here and that, you know, the, the real like rot that you're seeing, the cultural rot that is just on display that angers parents across the board. Like this was such a huge thing. It shifted the narrative entirely. Like it yeah. wasn't always all day about Trump, right? It became all day, every day about these, these school board fights and about education. And then you have all these ridiculous think pieces where suddenly the Atlantic discovers that wearing masks have been bad, right? That children's <laughs> education quality. And like, why aren't we owning this as our issue? Like, this is our issue. We want kids to be, we want kids to, to go to school to learn. We want to get rid of all this bureaucracy and this craziness. Like though that right there, the energy was there. You know, people are talking about this now, and it's increasingly difficult for our adversaries to defend the things that everyone is noticing. Um, and then, but like juxtapose that to suddenly now we're talking about Trump having dinner with somebody. I mean, you know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not just saying like, I'm not trying to uh, cast shade on Trump. I'm yeah. just saying that like, now you see how the media is working this. Like, where is the energy? We're going back to the brown scare of 20, you know, it's the same thing. And like, why are we trying to kick to that football right now? <laughs> right. Did why you ever, sorry, what are you going to say? No, no, go ahead. What Did you ever see the ad for Kimberly Klasik? This was like five, three years ago. She was running for, 
she was running for black woman running for Maryland, some like super democratic Maryland congressional district uh, as a Republican. And she, she had the best political ad I've seen. I, and I always think about it in a long time. And it was saying all of the, this was even before COVID all of these local bullshit issues. And it went like hyper viral. Because so many people just related to what she was saying, both nationally and locally. She lost, of course, because, you know, I'm sure, who knows, but I'm sure there was funny stuff there, obviously. But this is kind of what you're saying, just even on an even more local level. Uh, yeah, and it's it kind of goes back to the whole notion when we talked about the elections, right? Like, yes, there are definitely, like, we can get into the nitty and gritty here, and there's always a time and a place for that. But if we're going to think strategically here, like we have a winning issue, we have kitchen table issues that no one can deny. No one's enjoying this inflation we're eating. Nobody's enjoying the gasoline prices. Nobody's enjoying, you know, not knowing if their kids are going to make it home safe. Like these things are real. Everyone feels them. And the regime continually denies that they exist. Right. Now you have this huge issue that all you have to do is say, we're fixing this. We will restore order where there's chaos. Here's my plan. I've got this going. Now, you might not be able to sell that nationally, and that's fine. Sell it locally. That's easy. Like, we're not going to talk about who's eating dinner with this or that. I don't yeah. need you to condemn, you know, Mein Kampf or whatever. Like, <laughs> we're not going to get sucked into these stupid, pointless arguments. Like, I don't, I mean, I post about the Cold War all the time, but like, we don't need to go back and relitigate McCarthy and all this stuff. We need to be talking about like, hey, look, I'm a competent person. These people are incompetent. They're corrupt. I will restore order at this local place. I mean, this is this is easy. We can do this. And a lot of these elections do not cost that, that much money. I mean, we saw school boards being taken over by soccer moms all yeah. over the nation. No one really talked about it because all we wanted to do was focus on these national grand issues yeah. that – that get play on cable news. I don't feel like that's an accident. And I'll tell you what, the Democrats, if you're a Republican, the Democrats are are already thinking of ways to thwart this. They want to take these things back that they've lost. If we continue to get sucked into these pointless, silly, media-driven narratives and being, you know, relitigating propaganda itself, we're going to lose this. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Man, we got to get you to be running the uh, America First platform in D.C. <laughs> that's what that's what we need. We need more people like that actually in control. But um, cool, man. This was a really great conversation. Um, I, of course, like was saying it was going to be short and then it, it went long. But that's because we had just such great stuff here. I have one more topic uh, to ask you about, but I don't know. Maybe we can save it for another time. It's about patriotism, your common theme. Yeah, I mean, whatever you want to do. I mean, I've got the night off, but if you want to call it, it's up to you. I'm fine with that. All right, let me just ask you this last. Let, let, let's just do it because we're here. Um, we started with this anyway, so it's a good way to to put a button on this. So you mentioned in the beginning that some of your thoughts about the myths we tell ourselves, these American things, the things that people like me were taught, you know, who come from the furthest left possible upbringing you could um are told is patriotism right like equality and and maybe even freedom right 
So I guess I just wanted to ask you about this because you've talked, all the other people who I've heard interview you talk about this thing of patria and patriotism and, and what does it mean? So this this notion, this American notion that all men are created equal, what, what does that mean to you? Well, what that, <laughs> this is one of those where you have to kind of parse into like what is the myth and what is the reality. And, you know, in if you understand that the way the Constitution and the and the Declaration of Independence, actually, that's a good way to, place to start. The de, where did the Declaration come from? It was not, it did not appear ex ex nihilo, right? It, this was not something that was just like created out of whole cloth because a bunch of really smart people had great ideas. We are not that is not our as as far as that that's not the what the Republic was. It came from a, I mean, there was context here. It came from a place of people with a history, with customs, with norms, with a culture. They were seeking to restore things that they had felt had been lost, but it was within that limited tradition. And I don't know how you can get out of it. This is one of those places it's really tough because, you know, I have well-meaning, wonderful, decent people that really take those lofty, you know, they, they latch onto these things and run with them as these lofty ideals. And that's where you kind of get, we need to run around the world and we need to make sure that everyone has, you know, quote unquote freedom, like whatever that means. Um, but we came from a humble beginnings in a lot of ways. It was a mag, it was a magnificent moment in, in world history, in my opinion. Um, but this came from an English tradition. This came from a people, a people that understood the words that they were using because they were within a context that had been used before. You know, Englishmen at that time, early Americans, they understood what equality meant to them, understood what the, the law meant. It did not mean that all, all differences needed to be leveled and erased, you know, and that... And we know this, right? I mean, if you talk to a normal person, they'll agree with this because it sounds insane otherwise. But unfortunately, that is the ideological character of our regime now. Yeah. And it's be yeah. and it's it's very ahistorical. Okay. Now it's in the Declaration of Independence saying all men are created equal, not as this is not that they were saying that this is a goal we must achieve. They were saying, let us come and let us. Let us reason together about where we are at. Like we already know that these things are self-evident to us within our tradition. We are Englishmen, right? We have a law that is ancient in origin. We have a, a culture and, and, and norms and customs, like as in like the way power is delegated. We have a very specific understanding of what the role of a monarch is and what the role of a parliament is. And when they violate this ancient law, they have like the question becomes like who is higher is the law higher or is the monarch in the parliament and to the founders they felt like this had been violated to the point that it was time to break away they were not making these grand you know platonic type you know uh pronouncements that we needed to go achieve the, the when they set up the constitution notice that all that language kind of dies away right it was a pragmatic attempt to to conserve, pre preserve the things that they already had as Englishmen. They felt like they had had those things violated. And by violating those things, they they felt like it would that they could break away from, you know, 
the power that be over across the ocean. And so like when I, when we talk about this now, and this is, you know, I use this in my piece talking about how that kind of got repurposed during the war between the States. Um, and we've kind of lived under its shadow for a very long time. Um, this is controversial. I, I got a little bit of blowback. Um, and I'm torn on this for several reasons. I mean, in one way, I don't want to disparage. I'm one of those people, and I get, I catch flack from people down south on this a lot. Um, I don't I don't actually disparage Lincoln on the timeline very often. Okay, um, I feel like we have a American inheritance that is quickly being eroded and it's being taken away, and all of us are on the menu. I don't feel like that's my fight. I necessarily want to pick. So my point was not to try to attack Lincoln by saying that his repurposing of these things and turning it into an ideological objective, uh, I wasn't trying to disparage him when I did that, but I'm trying to provide some context that this was, a, in my opinion, a departure from the old republic, that the old republic faded away after these things were repurposed, where the Declaration of Independence became a it really became like an ideological objective for the government to constantly pursue. And you'll see this, that I think the remnants of this are you talk to your average person, if you want to talk about immigration, they're going to bring up a plaque or whatnot on the Statue of Liberty as if it has some kind oh, of. Oh yeah. Like God, the Emma basis. Lazarus poem. I hate when people fuck every time, but see, it's they do so this. Stupid. I mean, they do this <clears throat> exactly. And they, so they do this with the declaration They'll do that with they'll do that with this. And and I mean, this is the, always just so people know it's the bring me your poor, tired, huddled masses, which was, you know, <laughs> written by a Jewish poet and built for us by the French. And it's like totally not codified American law. And that's like, oh, but that's what America is. Right. It's like, no, I said, no who said that? That's not what America right. is. Right. No. And then see, like, and when we get to a political sense, like, think about this, we have the rank and file, like America first, what is this? Like, we are just regular people. That's like really yeah. regular people yeah. who have been, uh, who have really been like left behind and, and abused by our corrupt elites. I mean, that's what this is. We're not rejecting class. We're not rejecting all the, like, we need a change of guard here. And the whole thing is like, what was the protection the protection was we have a very strong legal system, a uh, legal tradition. We have these things that have been built up within our constitution that have like, they, they are rooted in something real. Okay. Now America is an idea, you know, where the country becomes this like, you know, nebulous ideal. Uh, notice how easy it is to strip somebody of their liberty, which was the primary concern of that founding generation is retaining that liberty for their posterity. Okay. So it's like when now now that we're an idea, there's nothing grounded there. Now our lives are to be dictated by a plaque on the Statue of Liberty or by a sentence in the Declaration. You know, it's so obvious how this has been abused and it's been exploited by our elites to justify their dominion over us, not to provide liberty, not to protect it, not to make sure that we have, you know, the 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 simple promises that were afforded to us in these documents that actually matter. And so this is why I reject that. I equality is not the objective of the American government. Like that is not an objective to pursue. We do have our our founders did have ideals that they subscribed to. 
that they valued. But notice when the rubber hit the road, when they came down to crafting the Constitution, they did not orient the, the system of government in pursuit of ideals. They tried to create a system that was in opposition to itself, to at least at the very least, most fundamentally, to preserve liberty. That was the whole point. But that is also an ideal, right? I mean, the, it's not that the purpose is equality. It's freedom. The purpose is freedom. Yeah, and, and within the context that they understood it. I mean, liberty was something that English Englishmen understood that they had liberty as a free people and that that liberty was something that you know, it incorporates other things like sovereignty and all this, but like really fundamentally it was that they would be able to have some like, you know, a level of say over their lives, over their daily lives that could not be taken from them. Something that they felt that they were entitled to, uh, that, that the government could not provide. All it could do was be prevented from taking. And that's really, you know, for me, like when you ask like, what is, you know, patria and all that, like, when I say this, it's like you cannot have patriotism without patria. And we have we have a land in which we have history on. What is we have custom what, what is patria? Well, I think you have to be it has to be rooted to a place and it has to be rooted within people on that place. It is not a like this is not just like I don't believe human beings are like economic units. I believe people come with you know, centuries of, you know, more of culture and customs and norms. And these, these things are tied fundamentally to place. They have to be. And that is like our, like when I say like, what is America to me? And, and this is the thing is I always, <laughs> I get a lot of people that jump into my DMs and want to fight about this, but I can't view it from somebody else's perspective. I can't, I only can speak for myself. I'm a person who has centuries on this continent you know my family that have that every you know every war we have fought in even wars that before we were a country um my ancestors were involved in you know blood was spilled on this continent from from people that i come from i cannot just be stripped of this and just try to view myself through the you know the lens of like a robot uh and trying to strip away all of that and see things in an abstract sense that's just not how it is and that's not how it is for most people even if your ancestors have only been here for 50 years, they've been in a place, they have a story, they have a culture, which has been influenced by, by where they were at and the time that they lived in. You were not that much different from the founding generation. The gener the founding generation came from a place, you know, they, they were when in the 1790s, when it looked like we were going to go to war and <laughs> we had foreign meddling, just similar as today, um, these people had to build a country by taking into account the context in which they lived. That is what this, this place is. And I don't want to lose that. You know, I, I'm not going to just strip those things away so that it can make it easier for us to all be like widgets in an economy, you know, and that's like, I am not somebody who thinks that if you don't have heritage that stretches back to like, you know, 1635, that you're not you know, that you, you have no, you have no, you're not entitled to any of these things. I don't believe that, but that's who I am. And I don't want anyone to lose uh, their attachments to place. I don't want anyone to lose their attachments to this, to their history and story and their culture. And I believe we do share a lot of these things together. 
And so to me, like America is not just an idea. America is a place and it's a, a place with a people. And there is a distinct culture here. And you'll notice it whenever you go anywhere else in the world that we do have that. And I refuse to give that up. And I, I refuse to, to, to force others to lose that as well. And so, you know, when we focus primarily on our objective as Americans, like as if we have a mission and it's to achieve equality, you know, whatever that means, or achieve freedom for people all over the world, you know, we're, we're becoming detached from the place and the people that we belong to. And we are, you know, when we, when we do that, we become untethered and we live in the world of abstractions. And that's, in my opinion, that is where you get some of the worst crimes of the 20th century were by orienting people and governments around those things. I mean, both communism and <clears throat> Nazism were both that, right? I mean, well, I mean, obviously Nazism was the reverse of that, but because it was all all blood and soil, but uh, at least communism was, I, I, all I mean is that it was this, the idea of Nazism was actually very disconnected from any tradition at all, right? I mean, it was a completely, it didn't follow naturally from anything. It was sort of spliced on top. And communism also, right, was just completely made up. It was this thing that had no relation to anything besides this deep resentment that people had. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, I think a great example of that is you just look at what did, I mean, what did the Soviet regime, what were they able to do to those people to get them to do, right? I mean, and it works for both regimes, but I'm focusing on communism is a good example because people are much more comfortable with communism than, I mean, Nazism is a dead letter. Everybody knows it's gone. I'm not really I don't really see Nazis, but I see a lot of sympathy and understanding for communism today. We still have communist regimes. And it, if you look at what they were able to achieve and what they were able to do, I mean, it was really you untethered that entire that group of people and in pursuit of an abstraction. And yeah, by pursuing total abstraction, abstraction. You know, like a total, yeah, a complete absolutely. abstraction that really had, I guess it's the problem is the communists look back and they say, well, that's exactly what the, that's exactly what America is, right? I mean, that's what the French Revolution is. That's what this whole thing of liberty was overcoming the monarch. It was all an idea. And in a way, they're not totally wrong because what the Enlightenment was a time of ideas, right? That was time. That was when abstract shit was flying around everywhere. So it's it's just I think that would be the left wing response. They'd say, well, what are you talking about? That's what the whole notion of building a free society where, you know, that's governed around of men being equal, or even if it's not that, if it's governed around um, freedom of religion, right? They they would say that that also is a totally abstract idea. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, they would. They would say that. But, you know, where you can always counter is that these, what we are defending here is we are defending, we are not, we are not against people having ideas, right? We're not against I'm not against, uh, I'm not opposed to ideals, right? But we have to recognize them as ideals. And the only way to do that is to be firmly rooted in something real, in something that exists. And in a world like today, the only thing you can really be sure of in that regard is that you, you, 
you have to have a little introspection. I mean, you live in a place, you come from a people, you are not, you are not stripped down of these things to just be a plaything in the hands of, of idealists. You know, there are like, there are, and this is where the legitimacy side of this comes into, you know, the more that this regime tries to do that, the more illegitimate it becomes, the more it tries to strip people of their attachments to place and people and their families and to their faith and the, the to, you know, to the, to the kinds of commitments that people have had for thousands of years, you know, it wears down its legitimacy. And we have to realize that if we go with the program, if we accept the priors, if we, if we, if we start to orient ourselves strictly around abstractions, we will become just as powerless as many of the people who suffered under communism for decades. And I, I think the American, I think, you know, I, I worry about this a lot. I, I, I am one of those people who believes that we didn't quite win the cold war. Like we thought. Mm, yeah, and, no, it would sure look like we didn't. Right. I mean, the communists well, are winning right now. That's for sure. Well, it, it, it's interesting how it's interesting how our culture has been, in, in many ways, our culture has kind of grown around um, the same kinds of ideas about what society should look like and what human beings are that are so similar to the way that, that communists of yesteryear talked about these things. I mean, it's not an accident that the, a concept as old and American as free speech, which is you know, this is something clearly stated, right, in actual, like in our founding documents, that these, that a concept like that would be viewed with such hostility by millions of Americans, right? That censorship would, people would be begging for more censorship. You know, this is not an accident. And I, you know, it's hard to trace all these things, but we do have a, a real fight on our hands. And I think that the more that we succumb to this nonsense, in, in kind of, you know, it's always shrouded in, and this is the hard part, it's shrouded in American sounding gobbledygook, you know, yeah. that it's not an accident that during, you know, what people call the Red Scare, but when we finally woke up to the fact that communism had had, had a profound imp, influence on, on Soviet communism had had a profound influence on us, um, it's, it's really no accident that some of those fights were shrouded in civil liberties to protect those people who had done that. And that's like, and that's like really kind of the devil's in the details with these things. And Americans don't quite understand that they have a kind of adopted a vocabulary and a vernacular that I think is more familiar to some of those early socialist and communist thinkers than it is to their own founding fathers. And I would like to see without refer to that. Yeah. And as you said, the perfect example uh, is the civil rights act, which is, arguably the least freedom related least liberty related thing we've ever done the most communistic thing we've ever done uh the least american for sure thing we've ever done is the civil rights act which <clears throat> you know many would say christopher caldwell would say would say negated the entire constitution which i would agree with i mean i went to law school and you start you I didn't fully realize it until I read Age of Entitlement, but you can see that the Civil Rights Act pretty much destroyed what the Constitution had set up, which was free, I mean, to me, it's not even individual liberty. It's freedom of assembly. That's the most underrated 
part of the entire, you know, constitution. And mm-hmm. that's what it destroyed. It destroyed the right for people to assemble the way that they want to assemble themselves, which is really the basis of the entire American experiment. They just didn't spell it out quite well enough to preserve it from being destroyed by the Civil Rights Act. And that kind of brings us to today. No, it does. I mean, it, and I, you know, I kind of look at it as, you, you know, we had a long, I mean, this has been a long departure from, you know, the Republic when the Republic probably, you know, the early Republic ended and you have, I mean, but you can see it more clearly. And this is why I think it's worth talking about with regular people is that you have the new deal, which, which very much, I mean, you could go into Wilson, all that, but really like where people will be able to actually see tangible things is, you know, you have this new deal regime that was a sharp departure, a, a very sharp departure from, from what came before and upon its carcass, that's where you build up the, you know, you have this civil rights regime, which, you know, it's sound and it's shrouded in this language that feels very American. It feels right. And, and, and most Americans are not going to feel comfortable with things like segregation, you know, and, and, but see, that's kind of like a, that's a distraction. The point is, is that you're exactly right, is that it redefined fundamental American rights and liberties uh, freedom of association first and foremost and and from that we have seen a huge loss of liberty over time for everyone involved even the people it was intended to help and so i don't know how you can get around these things without addressing them and i want us to be eventually our culture to be in a place where we can talk about these things more openly what christopher caldwell did was just groundbreaking in my opinion i couldn't believe somebody like him with his background and his, you know, his experiences as a, as a journalist would be uh, bold enough to write a book like that, yeah. but it was very well done. Yeah. Very and that's well a book done. that your average normie type person can grab a hold of and understand, and it, it will change their perspective in a very good way. I would really like to see, I mean, there's almost a, I don't want to, it's not full blown revisionism, but it's, it's kind of down that same path where you're starting to re-examine things in a different way. I would really like to see the right focus more on re-examining some of these things, um, especially in our own history. I mean, we don't we don't get enough of that. And I'm trying to do that now with uh, some of the Red Scare stuff. I mean, I think that's been completely like the whole concept of McCarthyism is really ridiculous. Um, I'm trying to kind of pop some of those bubbles now. But we we really need to reevaluate these things because we didn't just get here by accident. We we have a lot of conservatives that like to jump all the way back to 1776 and wonder what went wrong. But there's there's a lot of recent stuff that will help us find our way back to understanding what happened. And I think you can't go wrong with looking at that era or going even back to the New Deal and kind of looking at how what a sharp departure all these things were. Right. Yeah. I'm a little. I, I'm a little less uh, familiar with the New Deal stuff than I than I am with um, the Civil Rights Act stuff. But yeah, I think you're totally right that actually a lot of this stuff began then. And I think I've heard other people say that about the New Deal, but that was really when this started. And we're still kind of in the shadow of that today. Um. Well, you know, I, I would yeah, just say like on one last part about that is if people want to know probably when the last time the right had any real power would have been around that era and we the way we understand power today i think is a little wrong the last time the right had a chance was probably around that era and so it's a good it's a good way a good place for people to kind of start 
and look at the difference and look at where you're kind of seeing the last gasp of an authentic political right and, and watching it die. And that's a really, it's a really sobering thing. And it, when you get through the leftist, re, you know, refab that they do on it, if you get a look at the primary source and see what would, what those, what that generation was up against, it was, it's a, it's a tragedy, but I don't think we can go anywhere if we don't understand that. What about Reagan now? Yeah, I, um, I mean, and you kind of get into this with Reagan and Nixon. I mean, at this time, you, this is kind of where, why it's important to reexamine the, the New Deal and the years leading up to it is that you have pr American presidents that are trying to, they have no desire to actually, uh, to actually like fatally wound the beast that had been built up during the New Deal regime. They have no plan to truly take it down. They think that they can control it. And so you have Nixon who had a chance and Nixon campaigned on that chance. You know, Nixon, I, I think Nixon is underrated, understudied. Um, Nixon had a chance to, and he pledged that every time a Republican would run, there was a conservative wing that was very much underrepresented in Washington that desperately wanted their Republican president to take down the New Deal regime. This is the and you're watching every time a Republican runs Eisenhower, then Nixon, you know, and so on and so forth. That conservative, that conservative population gets let down every single time. Barry Goldwater, you know, really pledges it, but it gets wiped out by LBJ. And then you have this resurgence, and that a lot of that energy that you saw with Reagan was that same group, much older and had much changed. But that's that's really what that group has kind of held together distinctly ever since then, you know, and Reagan tried to kind of do he he went about it his own way, but he didn't have plans to really take that down. He was at, at heart. He was an FDR Democrat who, you know, became a Republican. And it's very simple. That's what it was. I'd say the first authentic breath of that same movement uh, that actually had a chance was with Trump. And that's what initially really appealed to me with him. And um, we'll see where it goes. But it, this thing has a long lineage. It has a genealogy. You can go all the way back to the fights over the New Deal and that population of conservatives. And, and back then, being a conservative was something you didn't say in public. You would never say that in Washington. Mm. You know, Nixon didn't even really like calling himself a conservative unless he was on the campaign trail. Um it, they, you know, and that's something I don't think a lot of people understand. Reagan made it socially acceptable to be one, you know, to say you were one. But as you can see, what is a conservative now? We don't even really know. And right. so I think it's worth people uh, taking a look. If they want to really get into something interesting, check out the first America First movement and don't read contemporary accounts of it. Go back to primary source and read what these guys were saying. These guys were veterans of the first war. They tried to start they tried to start a movement that would keep us out of war. They, they really, they really made uh, FDR get a little nervous. They were very close to winning some of these battles uh, with FDR and then Pearl Harbor happened and just took the wind out of their sails, but they were very close. And many of the things that they were saying and doing and, and fighting for are things that would resonate with uh, America first people today. That's fascinating. We need a, we need a, uh, age of entitlement for for that era i would where's caldwell he's that's what he should write next um all right yeah. man well dude this was so so great um thank you very much 
for coming on. And where can people find you? Yeah, just go. I'm on Twitter at my handle is at partisan underscore O. And then I am on uh, Substack at ruins.substack.com. Awesome. Um, thanks, dude. Uh, yeah, let's let's keep talking and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, adios. Thank you very much. I appreciate right. being on. Thanks.